Howdy, everybody. Before we start today, just a reminder that we hope you're having an amazing summer, enjoying podcasts, sharing them with friends and family, and telling everybody about what we're doing here at Come and Take It. You're our biggest fans and our biggest helpers, so get out there and spread the word. And additionally, don't forget to visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast if you'd like to support the show financially. And without further ado, here's the show. Tornadoes, man. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. They're one of the most terrifying weather phenomena there is, able to strike with little warning practically anywhere, and brings destruction and mayhem in their wake. This week, we're talking about the history of terrible tornadoes in Texas. Wait, that's what we're talking about this week? Because first, what's your favorite Texas tornado song? I prepped a whole bunch of stuff about the four greatest musicians to ever come out of Texas. Well, no, it's not a, it's not an episode about that fantastic supergroup, the Texas Tornadoes. But uh, they that group does have a great song called Guacamole, which is really hilarious. Um, but I still just love Hey Baby Que Paso. Hey Baby Que Paso, I thought I was your only vato. Great line. Is a great tune. Great tune. Mm-hmm. Now, on their original one, they had a great cover of the classic tune Volver. So if you just want some traditional, you know, old school, that one's pretty great. But there's a, a fun one. Uh, Doug Som takes the lead in called He is a Tejano. And it, they're all, again, you know, they're, I don't know, they're like, they're like halfway, they're, they're serious, great musicians. They pay happy, upbeat music. They're somewhere between Pharrell and... Like Weird Al, but like in that Tejano spectrum. So. Proud to be from South Texas. And proud to be from South Texas. Yep. Yep. Well, um, I will have to pick um, the uh, the one about the pants. Um, El Pantalone Blue Jean. Mm, it's, uh, great it's a song. great song. Great yeah, song. I enjoy that one quite a bit. The Blue, I mean, Je- the blue Jean Pant. Yeah, well, I mean, how can you not like a song that's about pants? Mm. I mean, ZZ Top did one about it, too. <laughs> that's true yeah anyway that's enough about pants music let's talk about some horrifying natural phenomenon in texas one of the most terrifying and destructive natural phenomena in existence is the dreaded tornado also known as a cyclone or a twister a tornado is defined as a violently rotating column of air in contact with the ground either pendant from cumuliform or thunderstorm cloud Tornadoes technically must touch the ground from a thunderstorm cloud, otherwise they are just funnel clouds. Most tornadoes in the United States occur along a belt skirting the eastern edge of the Great Plains from Iowa to Texas in what is known as Tornado Alley, but they can occur anywhere thunderstorms find the right conditions for tornadoes to form. They are most frequent in Texas during April, May, and June, but again, if a thunderstorm can form, then so can a tornado. In the recorded weather history of Texas, tornadoes have caused considerable economic loss and loss of life. A tornado cloud has a twisting tail or a funnel, which which operates like a suction tube, and it moves erratically across the ground, smashing some buildings, skipping others, and changing directions. The result is that the aftermath of tornadoes gives rise to inexplicable mysteries that are recounted until they become folklore. Some of the oddities in Texas tornado tales include live plucked chickens, straws driven into posts, corn cobs embedded into tree trunks, Houses intact but shifted from their foundations, whole large roofs displaced for a few by a few inches, 
babies lifted unharmed out of destroyed homes and heavy equipment carried great distances. Meteorologists have developed a scale of intensity in the early 1970s to measure the destructive power of tornadoes, which is known as the Fujita scale. So when we talk about it, it will be we'll be discussing rankings of these storms ranging from F0 for the weakest to F5 for the most destructive. Now, unlike with a hurricane, a tornado cannot be seen coming, and there is little that can predict where and when a tornado will form or touch down. Today, there's sophisticated weather tracking and modeling tools, but in many ways, we're not much better able to spot a tornado before it forms than we were 100 years ago. With its wide open spaces that stretch for most of the north-south length of the state and many areas in between, Texas can be vulnerable to tornadoes practically anywhere. A prime example is May 6, 1930. For about 12 hours, massive turbulence resulted in tornadoes from the panhandle to San Antonio and deep into East Texas. From the morning, nearly 20 tornadoes broke out from Abilene to Austin and then moved across the state, hitting Ennis near Dallas, San Antonio in the south, Kennedy near the coast, and Sabine County in the Piney Woods. 82 people were killed, many more injured, and damage totaled almost $2.5 million, which no doubt is much more in today's dollars. The earliest history of Texas is full of tornado narratives, but there is little actual historical detail about the storm system or temperatures or wind speeds. Most accounts simply list the effects of the powerful storms. According to one account, as an example, a tornado in the Cedar Creek community in May 1868, quote, blew cattle into the air, lodging them in trees, sucked all water from the Brazos River for a short distance, and dumped a 50-pound fish on dry land. Beginning in the 20th century, as weather science evolved, we have better records of many of the signature tornadoes that have impacted the state. Over the next few episodes, we're going to talk about some of the greatest hits. The 1902 Goliad Tornado. One of the earliest tornadoes that we have detailed records for struck Goliad near the coast east of San Antonio on May 18, 1902. Analysis of the data about the storm has allowed us to estimate that it was an F4 tornado, and to this day, it is one of the two most deadly tornadoes in Texas history. From May 17th to the 19th, thunderstorms occurred from the lower Missouri Valley into Texas. On the 18th in the early afternoon, the Galveston Weather Office issued a special warning of sprawls with brisk and occasionally high winds are indicated for the West Gulf this afternoon and tonight. Later that afternoon, the tornado is believed to have first touched down near Berkeley, about 15 miles southwest of Goliad, and moved towards the northeast. The tornado was on the south side of town across the San Antonio River about 3.35 p.m. It continued traveling northeast and wrecked the steel bridge across the river at San Patricio Street. The tornado then destroyed the filled Fannin Street Methodist Church. It went on to destroy the brick factory. A witness reported that it sounded like a, quote, million-ton train engine. The tornado was a couple of blocks wide when it moved up the west side of town, destroying more homes, businesses, and churches along the way. Its path was one-eighth to a half-mile wide and traveled for about a mile. Remarkably, by 3.45 p.m., the tornado was gone. Within a few hours, the damage became clear. Eighty-five people were reported dead on the first day, with 29 more reported later, totaling 114 deaths. There were also over 250 people that were injured. In addition to the African-American Fannin Street Methodist Church, a Baptist church in a parsonage, two Methodist churches, and the second story of the county courthouse, along with 150 homes and businesses, were all destroyed. 
In the Fannin Street Church, at least 50 people were attending services, and no one survived. Dr. Lewis Warren Chilton, a young doctor whose wife was injured and whose daughter was lifted into the tornado funnel but somehow survived, set up a temporary hospital in morgue in the first usable floor of the county courthouse. In terms of economic impact, $125,000 of damage occurred, which adjusted for inflation is about $3.4 million. It would be many years before Goliad recovered from this horrible day. 1947 Glacier Higgins Woodward Tornado In 1947, a huge thunderstorm cell, known today as a supercell, swept across the plains from Kansas to Texas and spawned a massive tornado that tore a path of destruction through several Panhandle and western Oklahoma communities. The Glacier-Higgins-Woodward tornado occurred on April 9, 1947, and is believed to be be a single large F5 tornado— which traveled nearly 125 miles from Texas to Oklahoma. The tornadoes began in Texas, the first of which was an F2 that occurred in the White Deer area, derailing a train and damaging several homes and other buildings. One farmhouse was lifted into the air and set back down onto its foundation. A second tornado touched down near Pampa but caused no damage to the farmland. It was the third tornado that was the monster, a multiple vortex F5. It developed near the town of Miami in the upper corner of the Panhandle and destroyed a railroad station outside of town, killing one person. After touching down, the tornado began moving northeast along what is today State Highway 60. By the time it hit the tiny town of Glacier, only 30 miles away, the funnel was nearly two miles wide. Virtually every building in the town was obliterated, with cars and trucks being thrown yards away. Seventeen people were killed and dozens were injured. One report stated that a couple who were known to be together in Glacier were found three miles apart. Traveling over the flat ground of the Panhandle, the storm maintained its intensity as it hit the small town of Higgins right on the border with Oklahoma. Higgins suffered largely the same fate as Glacier, with most of the buildings in town, including sturdy brick buildings in the downtown area, destroyed and 51 people being killed. At one residence, a four and a half ton lathe was reportedly ripped from its anchors and broken in half. The tornado crossed the border into Oklahoma, becoming the deadliest storm in that state's history. Six more people were killed when the tornado hit farms in the communities of Shattuck, Gage, and Fargo. Then it moved on into Woodward, where it obliterated the town, destroying 100 city blocks and killing 107 people. When the tornado struck the town's power plant, a 20-ton steel boiler tank was lifted and thrown a block and a half. The tornado finally broke up west of Alba, Oklahoma, while the supercell continued to Kansas, producing more smaller tornadoes. Cleanup in the region was actually made more difficult because a late spring snowstorm followed in the wake of the storm cell. The Glacier-Higgins-Woodward tornado ultimately was the sixth deadliest in U.S. history, killing 180 and injuring 970. Next, we're going to talk about the 1953 Waco tornado. According to an old legend attributed to the local Native American tribe in the area, tornadoes could not touch down in Waco, a city in central Texas located along the Brazos River between Austin and Dallas and home to Baylor University. There's some measure of truth to the legend. The city grew up on bluffs around the Brazos River, a geological depression which normally does much to keep weather relatively rare and mild within the city. In May of 1953, however, this myth was shattered by the horrible power of an F5 tornado, resulting in the other of the two most deadly tornadoes in Texas history. 
The tornado first formed on May 11th around 4.10 p.m. Central Time, about three miles north-northwest of the Lorena community. It quickly began damaging structures as it tracked north-northeastward. As it neared Waco, operators of weather radar at Texas A&M University and College Station detected a hook echo in association with the parent supercell, one of the very first times that radar linked tornado genesis with hook echo signatures. However, as is common with a hook pattern in a storm, heavy rain obscured the tornado, making it invisible to people watching the storm from the ground. And for many years, the only way to really watch for tornadoes as a thunderstorm came through was for the volunteer fire departments to stand on a hill or mound and watch the clouds with flashlights. So, yeah, my dad used to do that when we lived in North Texas, and he was in the volunteer fire department. He'd go out to the cemetery where they had this big mound of dirt and would point flashlights in the sky and look for funnel clouds. And this was in the 1980s. Sounds entirely scientific. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this may have had tragic impacts with the city's response to the storm, as there was no actual warning when the tornado struck. As the thunderstorm began pounding the city with rain and baseball-sized hail, many people on the streets crowded into local buildings looking for shelter, including department stores, banks, and other downtown businesses. The tornado was almost a third of a mile wide when it struck downtown Waco at 4.36 p.m. When it hit the Dennis building, it knocked down a water tank off of the roof, and then it began blowing out windows. Beatrice Ramirez, who was an employee who just got out of high school, stood still where she was, knowing that there was nowhere safe to hide. Ten seconds later, the building collapsed, leaving dozens of people trapped beneath its ruins. And Beatrice was able to crawl out of the rubble. And Thirty people were not so fortunate. The last survivor was found 18 hours later, a switchboard operator who was saved by a mattress that fell on her. This sort of thing occurred throughout downtown Waco. Windows were shattered, roofs were torn off, buildings were knocked down. The Dr. Pepper plant, an imposing two-story brick building that's now a museum, had its roof and most of the second floor destroyed. Cars and trucks were thrown about like matchbox toys. One woman had a two-ton construction vehicle smash her car back to the ground after she had been lifted by the storm while trying to outrun it. Ironically, this saved her life as the storm wasn't able to lift both vehicles again. One car was observed to have been flattened down to a mere 18 inches. After just a few minutes of terror, the storm moved on to the northeast, destroying buildings and homes in its path. The tornado finally dissipated about 10 miles outside of the city around 5 p.m. It had only taken some 50 minutes to complete its destructive trek. Most of the older buildings in downtown Waco collapsed almost immediately. Newer buildings with steel reinforcement, including the 22-story amicable office building, now called the Alico Building, survived. Bricks from the collapsed structures piled up in the street to a depth of five feet, one and a half meters for those of you in Europe. Some survivors were trapped under rubble for 14 or more hours. Numerous bodies went days without being accounted for. In total, 114 people died in the Waco area, with 597 injured and over $41 million in damage, which would be about $400 million today. The tornado destroyed 196 businesses and factories, with nearly 500 others sustaining some level of damage. 150 homes were wrecked, and over 700 were damaged. Many churches and schools were also damaged. There were 2,000 cars that were wrecked, and over half the dead, 61, were in a single city block bounded by 4th and 5th Streets and Austin and Franklin Avenues. Now it would be a decade and a half before Texas would see such a massive level of tornadic destruction, and ironically enough, it would fall on the exact same day, 
on another small farming and college city. Come back next time as we pick up the story, this time in Lubbock, home of Texas Tech University. Tornadoes, man. Tornadoes, no bro. No bueno. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. As a North Texan, you guys spent a lot of time, you know, growing up in South Texas or on the coast. So you guys had hurricanes. Never had to worry yeah. about hurricanes in West and North Texas. No. Uh, but we always would joke, morbidly joke, like, well, why don't you just get out of the way? You can't really get out of the way a tornado. I mean, you can see the thunderstorm coming. Um, and But it might produce a tornado, and it might not. There's not much warning, really, that you effectively get uh, to do much more than get in your 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 cellar, uh, your your storm shelter, if you had one, or go to the neighbor's house if they had one, or just get in the the you know the inside bathroom and hunker down. Uh, that's that's all the protection you've really got from the tornado if it's going to come. Yeah. So um, that was one of the adjustments that I had to make moving up here from the coast. Is mm-hmm. you know I'd gotten accustomed in my life to the uh, yearly annual rhythm of hurricane season, uh, you know, where you always kind of were in some state of preparedness to pack up things that are important to you and get out of town as there was some advance notice. And then coming up here, the warning you get is the the sirens, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. when you hear the sirens, uh, go grab some pillows and go hide in your bathroom because that's most likely the only room in your, yeah. your house that doesn't have a window. So, um, you know, that whole... It's just a different state of mind. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, I grew up in North Texas and West Texas um, before we moved down to the College Station area. So, uh, you know, not far from Waco. So there, there was still there were still occasional tornadoes. There was enough hills that we could feel safe from most of them. But I, I do. I'm, each of these episodes, all, we're going to have three episodes where we, we cover different decades and different periods of of time when there's tornadoes. I'm going to have a connection. A weird connection to most of these. I'll give you my connection to the 1950 tornado. So my wife, her uh, grandmother, uh, grew up in Gatesville, which is just south of Waco. And uh, uh, it is, this was a couple of years after the, so three years after the, the 1950 Waco tornado. But uh, she was back uh, at her father's farm. He was dying of cancer. And she had just had a baby, my uh, my wife's uncle, Gary. And they were uh, – she was there. My, my wife's grandfather was still in the Army uh, because the Korean War conflict was going on. So he was in, serving in Chicago. Um, but she was there helping her dad, and she had a newborn baby. And a thunderstorm came through, and a tornado came through and hit the farm. And she said she she said that she took the baby and her father who was sick and dying and her mother and her carried the her father and the baby and her mother laid on her, on her dad and she laid on top of the baby at the base of the stairs right underneath the stairs while the tornado lifted up the house and scattered it across the farm uh, and no one was hurt the car was destroyed I think but I, I have to get that part of the story but the house itself was completely lifted up and completely shredded into 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 boards, basically, uh, around them as they were laying on the floor protecting their loved ones. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, was something that could happen if you lived on the prairie, if you lived on the plains where there was bad tornadoes. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, we we would go across the street. We didn't, we the town we lived in didn't have a storm shelter, but the neighbors across the street did. And one night, my dad went out to watch for tornadoes and 
he said, if you hear the sirens, go over to the, to the shelter. So the fire, sirens came off. And we went over to the shelter, and we heard this huge ruckus of a noise. We got out. When we came out, uh, a tin metal building had been lifted up, carried across the street, and hit this giant tree in the, in the school playground, which is right next to our house. Our house was in the path of that. Uh, of that building, except for that tree, and it picked and it knocked that tree practically over. Uh, that's the kind of destructive power that a tornado can have. It's pretty Crazy, remarkable. Man. Yeah. yeah, and I know we're going to talk about some more modern ones, but uh, and I'll go ahead and just get it out of the way now. You know, I think uh, we were all riveted by uh, the movie Twister. <laughs> you know, and it's you know, a documentary. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't think a lot of people know that. I think bubble. a lot of people think. I'm gonna burst your mm-hmm. bubble. I've never seen that movie all the way through. I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I've never seen it all the way through. I swear we you all went, saw it without we went, me. You we saw guys the went theater saw it in college, yeah. 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 I didn't see it. Didn't see <clears> well, yeah. I understand your childhood trauma of uh, yes, barely tornadoes. living through a tornado. It's a harrowing tale, Sean. Yeah. Harrowing. No, this is actually really, uh, this is a cool topic. I mean, it's that kind of, you know, we're we're after the season, so that's good. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing how these big storms just sort of touch people, and there's these histories that, uh, you know, touch places. You might, And you look at something like downtown Waco today, and you'd be like, you never know that happened there. Yeah, yeah. Would go. You go look at go look at a picture of the Dr Pepper Museum, or go to the Dr Pepper Museum, and there is a distinct U shape at the top of where they replaced bricks. It's different colored bricks. It's pretty remarkable. Pretty pretty creepy. Pretty scary. Yeah. And a car flattened to eighteen inches. Yep. Yeah. That's. I, that's, I was gonna say that's one of the the things that I mean it's consistent. And with all tornado stories, they, you always hear it's like these weird, random things that uh, the the power of these, you know, these winds can do is you know, drive the straws through walls and you know, like you said, flatten cars and, and all sorts of things. And pick you, up, it's just, yeah, pick up a crate of eggs and not break a single one of them. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's yeah. just the tremendous raw power and random chance of nature. Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. Well, there's there's more to come. Uh, 17 years exactly later. Uh, Mike, I'd like to hear, uh, I'd like you to ask your grandfather if he remembers the Kennedy storm of 1930. I will have to dig back. Oh, well, I'll I'll see if anybody remembers that one. Uh, Unfortunately, my grandfather lived in Kennedy Pass, but uh, my other grandfather lives down the road in Poth, uh, and he moved there in 45? Yeah, 45, 46. But there's probably some family history there that I can dig around and see if anybody has articles or knows somebody that might remember the big storm of 30. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to Brainstable and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. And sometimes on Mac Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. If you love this show and you're terrified of tornadoes, then tell your friends about what we're doing and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you, too, can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.